Good morning, church. Thank God for His grace that we can gather for a time of corporate worship once again, online, online on-site. I just came back from my developmental leave about a month ago. During these six weeks of break, I had the opportunity to walk the Camino in Spain. The Camino is a collection of European pilgrim roads that finish in the Santiago de Compostela. So I started my walk from a place called Saria, walked 20 to 25 kilometers every day for about a week, all the way to Santiago, and this is my final destination, the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. After this walk, I went to Regent College in Vancouver to attend a few summer courses, and this is one of the classes that I was in. I was especially looking forward to this Camino walk. Yet, at the same time, I was a little anxious about it because I had no idea what to expect and what would happen while walking alone along this hiking trail. So, in order for me to be well prepared for this trip, I started to come up with a very detailed packing list, making sure I have everything I will probably need for the trip. Things like comfortable pair of hiking shoes, hiking socks, making sure I have enough clothes and jacket, and I bought a lot of other things like raincoat, waterproof hat, waterproof shoe covers, a lightweight backpack, blister plasters. I was even considering whether I should bring along a pain relief muscle rub, just in case after walking so long, maybe my muscle will cramp, which I will need it. Well, preparation for a trip is necessary, isn't it? But I wonder how much is too much? And why did I spend so much effort and time preparing for, this, for all these things? I asked myself this and I, I found the answer. Deep down in my heart, I wanted to make sure that I will have a pleasant trip and trying my best to avoid any potential hardships during the hike. But truth be told, I wanted not just a pleasant trip, but a comfortable life. A comfortable life that has no lack. I have everything that I need. A life that is free from suffering. But what is the true comfort in the light of Jesus' second coming? So this is what we are going to explore through James chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, seeking true comfort, dealing with sufficiency and suffering. Let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to give you thanks for this time that we can gather to worship you. As we open your word this morning, May you open our ears so that we can hear what you have to say to us today. Help us to be the doers of your word so that we'll grow in wisdom and statue to become more like Christ. We commit this time into your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is the fifth week we are looking into the book of James. As we have already known, the focus of the entire letter of James is to reach out to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, the Jewish believers, talking about Christian maturity, both in our faithfulness to God and in our conduct towards others. It is not enough for us to just call ourselves Christians. We must continuously strive to grow closer to God in our behaviour, in our morality, as well as our internal attitudes. In James chapter 5, James concludes his letter by talking about where we put our trust in in this life. According to James, the fleeting wealth of this material world is not where we should put our trust in. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, when dealing with sufficiency, let us be generous. Verse 1, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. James begins this chapter 
with his denunciation of the rich non-Christians who are actually not among the readers of this letter. Weep and wail are often found in the prophets to depict the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord arrives. So the pronouncement James made toward the rich non-Christian, <coughs> sorry, rich non-Christians refer to the condemnation and punishment that God will mete out to them on the day of judgment when Christ returns. Questions, but is it wrong to be rich? If not, why did James condemn the rich? And why would James preach this message of denunciation of the rich non-Christian in a letter writing to the believers? Let's unpack them one by one. First, there's nothing wrong, nothing inherently wrong for being rich. As we know, there are plenty of wealthy people recorded in the Bible. People like Abram, he has he, he was very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And Solomon, whom the Lord blessed him with wealth and honor. And Job, who was a rich man owning thousands of sheep and camels, oxen and donkeys and a large number of servants. Their riches were God's blessing upon them. However, however, riches present a stewardship challenge to us. Riches present a stewardship challenge to us. The reason why James condemns the rich non-Christians is not because the amount of possessions they, are, they have. It's because of what they were doing with their riches. And why did James write his denunciation of the rich non-Christian in a letter writing to the Christians, writing to the believers? It is because James has regard to the faithful that their hearing of the miserable end of the rich might not envy them for their fortune. And knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. Verses 2 and 3a Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The perfect tense James used here suggests that the material possessions that these rich people are already in the state of being rotted, moth-eaten and rusted. James uses these images to tell us that money and material possessions in which the rich people place so much stock will not last because these things are transitory and unreliable. They will fade away and cannot provide any foundation for the life to come. That's when Jesus returns. Not only will wealth bring no lasting benefit to these rich people, it will even stand as a witness against them. Verse 3 be. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Eat your flesh like fire is an image depicting God's judgment. And why would the corrosion testify against them? It is because God has not appointed gold for rust. In fact, gold and silver will not rust, nor garments for moths. But on the contrary, God has designed them as aids and helps to human life. But these rich people did not use their riches to aid and help human life. So the actual evidence of this use will stand as a witness against them. That's why James condemned the rich, for they have selfishly hoarded wealth. Hoarding is the act of collecting large amounts of something and keeping it for ourselves. It is saving money without a specific need in mind and therefore only for the purpose of accumulating wealth. 
hoarded wealth is usually stored up and guarded against consumption because it has become our source of security. And one of the telltale signs of a hoarder is the inability of, to give away money to anyone. Well, this reminds us of the parable of the rich. A rich man enjoying the blessings of God with an abundant harvest in his land. But instead of using his increase to bless the needy, all he was interested in was managing his increase and accumulating his growing wealth. He built larger barns in place of the existing ones, thinking that he can take his life easy, just eat, drink, and be merry. And these rich people James condemned are like the rich fool. They are not aware of the sudden coming of the judgment of God. And they did not just selfishly accumulate wealth. They have also defrauded their workers by withholding their wages. It is at the expense of the poor that these rich people accumulate, accumulate wealth and live in luxury. Verses 4 to 6. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mow your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Once I heard a missionary sharing about his grocery experience in a mission field. He told us that the local grocers will usually sell things like oil, rice and other food and stuff in very small packaging. There is no way for them to buy a rice in 5kg package at the local grocery stores. At first, they couldn't understand why these grocers sell things only in small portions. Until one day, they found out that it is because the locals will not have enough money to buy anything in big packaging. Anything in big packages will cost more. And there, the locals only have enough to buy things in a small portion, just enough for the day itself. So back in the biblical times, the day laborers were a significant category of the poor. They were employed at a, a day at a time on the estate of others and paid their wages at the end of each day's work. They could be terminated in a few hours' notice and therefore they might often be unemployed. And it was impossible for them to save any money because the wages they had were just too small and only enough for each day. So withholding the wages of the workers, even until the next morning, was a serious matter. And therefore, employer who did so could even be accused of murder without hyperbole. Because the, the practical outcome of actions that the rich take against the poor to take away their gainful employment is that the poor will starve to death. So, what can we learn from these few verses? The first thing that came into my mind is that all employers to rightfully pay the wages of your employees on time. But the chief concern of James in this text is really about the well-being of the poor. For this is the heartbeat of our God who cares for the poor. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. God says, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. This is the foundation of James' warning against the rich. These rich people have sinned against God. 
the workers who worked the field for them were crying out against them and God heard their cry. This points us back to the Exodus when the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out to the Lord. God heard them and He responded, I indeed have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. This is the heartbeat of our God. He cares for the poor and needy, whether it's in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, or even in our days, our God remains the same. So when James wrote these few lines to the believers, he's also comforting them that God knows the hardship that they are going through. When I was in Spain and at Vancouver during my developmental leave, I noticed quite a number of homeless people, young and old, lying or sitting along the street. Some were asking for money. I remember one day when I was walking down a street in Barcelona, I saw a drunken man lying on the street and I noticed a puddle of fluid surrounding him. As I observed, his pants were actually wet and I concluded and suspected that that could possibly be a puddle of urine. And I was shocked and my heart sank seeing such a sight, realizing that, wow, this is the reality of life of some of my fellow human beings whom were also made in the image of God with worth and dignity. And in Singapore, God has also surfaced the issue of homeless and the poor and needy to us, especially during this pandemic. We thank God for the opportunity for us to use the church to be a shelter for some of the homeless during circuit breaker. And when the Lord blessed us with surplus, we had the opportunity to use part of the surplus to bless three needy families in the community as well as our other ministries like caring for the community, like food rationing and caring bill. Brothers and sisters, the opposite of keeping things for ourselves is to give and share what we have with others. Every one of us, rich or not so rich, is capable of giving. And we give generously because we know that all that we have belongs to God. Even when we have little, we still can give according to our ability, just like the poor widow who put in her two very small copper coins into the temple treasury. Jesus commanded that she, she has put in more than all the others because she has put in all she had to live on out of her poverty. So what matters is not the amount of our giving, it's our hearts and attitude of our giving. After James denounced the non-Christian non rich, he changed his tone as he starts to address his fellow believers, calling them brothers and sisters, who are those being oppressed by the rich. His intention now is to focus explicitly on the attitudes that God's people need to adopt in the face of suffering. In verses 7 to 11, James leaves us in no doubt about what he thinks the basic attitude must be, that is, to be patient when we deal with suffering. The words be patient, patience, persevere, Perseverance appears six times in this short five verses. In the light of soon return of Christ as judge and deliverer, James encourages the believer to imitate the farmer, to imitate the prophets, and to display patience with each other, and to imitate Job in the endurance of his suffering. Verses 7 to 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, 
patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too will be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The farmer's land in James' illustration is not a land watered by irrigation but by rain, which means the farmer will not be able to water his land as and when he would like. But he has to depend on God for the provision of rain. But when will the rain come? No one knows. So the only thing the farmer can do is to wait patiently amidst of the unknowns and uncertainties. Then in verse 9, James alludes, as James alludes that the second coming of Jesus is a time of judgment on the wicked in order to comfort and encourage the believers. Here in verse 9, James reminds them, reminds the believers that the second coming of Jesus will also include a series of a serious assessment of their own spiritual state and behavior. Therefore, he exhorts the believer, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door means the judgment is imminent. It is near. The word grumble translates a great word, stenazo, usually means groan or sigh. It connotes an expression of frustration for the people of God who are suffering oppression or even judgment. Don't grumble is one of the most persistent motifs in the whole letter of James. It is the problem of sinful speech as what we have seen, especially in chapter 3, talking about taming our tongue. But grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to happen when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. We vent our pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close friends and family. So it is quite natural for the believers under the pressure of poverty and persecution by the rich who turn their frustrations on one another. Thus, James encourages the believers, instead of grumbling, there should be patience with one another. And how do we practice patience with one another? Paul linked it with bearing with one another in love and a refusal to pay back wrong for wrong. That means we have to hold back our tongues as well our tongue, as well as our impulsive reactions from time to time whenever we got triggered. Just a few weeks ago, during one of our Saturday evening service, when the church was praying for Elisa in her commissioning prayer, I thought it was a memorable moment worthy to be recorded for her. So I took out my phone, started the recording, but soon after 30 seconds into the prayer, my hand started shiver shaking, very tired already, cannot tahan. My muscles get tense. And very naturally, almost immediately, my heart started to grumble and murmuring, like, wow, prayer so long. Huh? <laughs> immediately at the time, I also recalled the sermon that I was preparing then, talking about patience, don't grumble. And I laughed at myself. It's like, wow, this is just way too easy for us to murmur, for us to grumble. Not to mention those believers who were going through hardships. It's indeed very, very easy for them to just grumble one another. That's why James reminded them that don't grumble, don't sin against God. Then in verses 10 and 11, James continued to reinforce the illustration of his exhortation to patience under difficult circumstances. He said, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. Then, and then he shifts the terms that he's using from patience from verses of patience from verses 7 to 10 to perseverance in verse 11. He said, As you know, you count as blessed. We count as blessed. 
those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The prophets who spoke God's truth to a sinful generation have paid a high price for doing so. They were ignored, rejected, abused and even killed of their words. Knowing that his Jewish readers looked upon these prophets as heroes, so James encourages them to imitate these prophets by persevering under trial. And as I was preparing for this message and thinking hard about that one consistent message that James wants to bring across through our passage today, and I thought the story of Job is a perfect illustration to conclude his message. Job is a wealthy man. God regards him as a blameless, upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And there is no one on earth like him. However, Satan contends that Job is only righteous because God has favoured him generously. So Satan asks God, does Job fear you for nothing? He must be because of how you have blessed him. That's why he, fear you, he fears you. So he dares God that if given the approval to inflict suffering, Job will certainly change and curse God instead. And God permits Satan to do so, but he forbids Satan to take Job's life. And so what happened is, over the time of a day, Job is given four reports, each informing him that his sheep, servants and ten children have all died. Job rips his clothes and shaves his head in sorrow, yet he still praises God in his prayers, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. And the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So God won the first round and Satan lost. So on another day, Satan arrives in heaven again and God allows him another opportunity to test Job. And this time, Job is distressed with terrible skin sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And his wife said, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job protests and tries to endure his inflictions. Job suffered greatly. He struggled in the midst of pain and agony. And although he did complain and lament bitterly about God's treatment of him, but he never stopped trusting God. He never abandoned his faith. He endured and never gave up. A theologian, William Barclay, commented, James is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job, Job, not James, sorry. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied. And the flame of his faith was never extinguished in his heart. So as we look at this ultimate example of perseverance in the face of suffering, we can testify that Job really fears God for nothing. His relationship with God does not build or depend on how much God has blessed him with. Job still worshipped God and feared him even, even when he was left with nothing. Left with nothing. And because of his endurance and perseverance in the face of suffering, that he comes to see God face to face, he said, My ears has heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. During my hike along the Camino, every day without fail, towards the final four to five kilometers of my walk of the day, I always tempted to run. I would like to quickly finish my walk of the day and then finish it, call it a day. But 
I stopped myself from doing that because walking the Camino instead of it is not a test of physical fitness for me. It was a test of my patience. Because every day when I was about to finish my walk, I was always tempted to just quickly run, finish it, just get it over and done. But I stopped myself from doing that. I forced myself to walk slowly and learn to enjoy it. And on the day, the moment when I reached my final destination, and it was really a great convert that, wow, finally, finally, when I persevered till the end and I have reached my destination and finally I made it. As Job perseveres to wrestle with his suffering and making sense of God, he has finally come to see God face to face. This is his greatest comfort. And so as we look at the context of our passage today, from this angle, James is telling us that we should hold our material possessions in this life loosely. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be. What's more, we know that all these material possessions are temporary. The moment when Jesus returns, all these things shall pass. And what truly matters is really our relationship with God. It is more important for us to live our lives according to the teaching of the Lord by maintaining our spiritual integrity as God's people, even, even in the face of suffering, lest be judged by God too when He returns to judge the wicked. And the great word in verse 11, blessed, means to be fully satisfied. It refers to those receiving God's favour regardless of our circumstances. Similar with the, what James said in chapter 1, verse 12, he says that blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life and the Lord has promised to those who love Him. This blessedness speaks to the objective state of our relationship with God. And this is the ultimate encouragement for the attitude of patience, fortitude that James encouraging his readers and us to adopt in the face of suffering. True comfort is not found in our earthly material possession, but through having a relationship with God. Based on the relationship with God, we can trust Him for His provision as we give generously and be patient in the face of suffering and as we trust God to intervene. While patience in suffering will not always be rewarded by material prosperity, just like how God restored Job's but the good end that God brought about in Job's situation shows that the Lord is indeed full of compassion and mercy. And this would be the great comfort to us today, reminding us that our present suffering is not the end of the story and God will certainly transform our situation for good when Christ comes again in glory. True comfort is when our soul is found in Christ when He returns. I remember a few weeks back in Pastor Isaac's preaching, he was talking about all of us are actually the poor and needy and Jesus came to rescue us from that state. Jesus endured the cross till the end to make salvation possible for us. And therefore today, we can endure in this life in the, with patience so that we be found in Christ. What are the things that you are struggling with? Maybe we can take a moment now to pause and think about it. What are the things that you are struggling with? Let me encourage you that no matter what situation that you are facing, the most important thing for us is to endure to the end in this relationship with God. Endure to the end 
in this relationship with God. Strive forward so that we can be found in God when Christ returns. And this will truly make us the blessed ones. Let's take a moment to reflect how God has spoken to you and respond in prayer.